Right, here we are with the uh, fourth uh, episode of the BIPA Radar, and I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Mary Smigelski. Very happy to talk some BIPA with you, Mary. I am looking forward to our discussion, Josh. So we have talked about in prior episodes that there are all these class actions out there, and I think we've mentioned like a thousand class actions. What's happened to these cases? Well, a lot of the cases have settled. There are a lot that remain in litigation, and we need a crystal ball to see what's going to happen with them. But there are many that have settled, and those are both consumer cases as well as employer cases. Now, by settlement, what do you mean by that? A lot of them have settled on a class action basis. Um, some certainly have settled individually, but many have settled on a class action basis, meaning that the parties come to a resolution and agree to have the case certified for settlement purposes only so that a monetary value will be paid into a settlement fund and all members of the class will receive a payout. Before we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about how the cases are settling whether it's through direct negotiations or mediation or some other means? I think the answer to that is all of the above. And it really depends on an individual case. It depends on who are the counsel on both sides and the willingness of the parties to engage in those discussions. Um, sometimes it's necessary to have a very, very qualified mediator who can help guide the parties and make each side see some of the other side. Um, but sometimes if parties are you know, willing to be very reasonable, they can get something done just having some phone calls and conversations. And in addition to mediation, there are some cases that are going before uh, judges directly to, to settle, right? Indeed, in settlement conferences or in court mediations. Right. And in federal court, the judges have the ability to compel the parties to go to a settlement conference, say, before the magistrate judge. And we've certainly seen some of our cases settle like that. Absolutely. And what we are also seeing is that the settlement conference judges, as well as the mediators, are very educated in this area. Now that it's been going on for several years, I think that they have a very good sense, not only of the value of cases, but also the different types of settlement structures. Right. And that is because not only are there so many cases, but now there have been so many rulings on different issues. And while there are a lot of issues we're uncertain about, and we talked about that extensively in the previous episode, there are issues that have been definitively resolved. Would you agree with that? I would agree, Josh. And I think that the judges are keeping apprised of those BIPA developments so that they are better suited to resolve these cases. Part of that is the question of what is the reasonable value? And it's not automatic that a plaintiff would recover in these cases. And I think that the judges are looking at that and understanding that a lot of these cases, there are potentially some negligent violations, but we have not seen many where there have been reckless violations or intentional violations other than the jury verdict that came down in the first BIPA case to be tried. Well, you mentioned a, a jury verdict, and that was uh, a big surprise to a lot of us in the defense community. It was a verdict of uh, about $228 million in that case. 
Yes. And that was for a class of about 44,000 people. And it is pretty rare to see a class action um, actually tried. Most of the time, class actions don't get tried because you have so many people in a class and the potential damages can be, as ultimately was the case here, rather astronomical. Well, just doing the quick math, 44,000 claimants, $228 million in damages, that means that each plaintiff got, what, $5,000? Yes. So there was an award of $5,000 per class member in that case. And that required the finding that there was an intentional or reckless violation. So we were not in the jury room. We don't really know what happened there with uh, in terms of why the jury found uh, that there was a reckless or intentional violation. But it would be, I guess, reasonable to surmise that given that this case was filed in 2019, 11 years after the statute came into existence, perhaps the jury thought that the defendant in this case should have known about BIPA. And the fact that they weren't complying with BIPA meant that they were allegedly reckless or intentional. And unfortunately, we're not going to know what the jury was thinking because the court denied the motion um, of the defense to go speak to the jurors. Oh, it, it, that that was uh, a recent development? Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. You know, it's a general principle of law that the jury room cannot be invaded except in exceptional circumstances. And I guess the judge in that case found that there were not exceptional circumstances. So it would appear. So that verdict is actually one of the reasons that companies are settling because they look at that and they think, well, gosh, what happens if we actually do litigate this? We think our position is correct. But as we all know, juries can be very, very unpredictable. So perhaps it's better to just get out with a settlement. Mary, before we go too far into this, I think it's important to explain what is a class action. So in a normal lawsuit, you have a plaintiff, the person who has the claim, and the defendant, the entity or the individual who allegedly did something wrong, and that their act or omission caused harm to the person filing the case. And in the BIPA context, we know that the Illinois Supreme Court said you don't need to have harm. So take that actual harm out of there. You need to just have a mere statutory violation. A class action means that that plaintiff is suing not only on behalf of themselves, but also on behalf of other people who are the same as them, who are similarly situated. Okay, so it's it's not just automatic, though, that a class can go forward. It's ultimately for, what, the judge to decide whether that is the case. That's right. Procedurally, what happens is someone files a lawsuit, just like they would file any other lawsuit, but they say that they're suing on behalf of themselves and the putative class. And then that class is defined. There is some definition. For example, anyone who had their biometric identifiers collected in the state of Illinois during X period of time. So anyone who would fit in that definition would be considered a member of the putative class. And it's called a putative class because the judge has not yet made that decision until later in the case. And the judge can make that decision on a motion for class certification if the litigation continues, or the judge could make that decision 
for purposes of settlement. Interesting. So in addition to the specific BIPA defenses that we have talked about in previous episodes, whether it's workers' comp, statute of limitation, federal preemption, arbitration, consent, waiver, et cetera, et cetera. There are defenses that are available that are specific to class action as well that are are raised in these cases, correct? Yes, that is exactly right. And as far as whose burden is that, who has to prove that it's appropriate for a case to be held as a class action, that's the plaintiff. It's the person who's filing the case. So not only do they have to prove if the case is litigated to completion that, in fact, they're right on liability, but they actually have to prove that all the elements for moving forward with a class action are satisfied. We talked about a lot of these cases that get settled, get settled through a mediation. And I want to take away the judge, the, the, the cases involving magistrate judges, and I'm talking about purely private mediation here. How does a class get certified by a private mediator? Well, so the mediator would not be certifying the class. So I think we should back up and talk about what is a mediator. And a mediator is a neutral person who would help parties come to resolution. And frequently, those mediators are with an organization like JAMS, um, which is a very fine organization nationally that has many retired judges and other esteemed attorneys and individuals who help parties resolve cases. So very practically speaking, what happens is the parties decide, well, maybe we should try to settle this case, but for whatever reason, we can't just sit down together and get it done. So we need that neutral assistance. So using JAMS as an example, the parties would contact JAMS. They would say, we need someone to help us who is experienced in this area of law. There would be several different options, and the parties would agree on someone. And then that person would be the neutral element to help them try to get a case settled. However, that person has no authority whatsoever other than the authority that the parties give them to try to help resolve the case. If the case is resolved, then that resolution has to be documented and be sent off to the court for a judge to actually approve to allow it to move forward. So let's say the without getting into more of the intricacies of class action, because I think we've covered a lot of that and we probably should move on and we can certainly come back to that in future episodes. What are these cases settling? It depends. Oh, come on. That is such a lawyerly answer. It is, but our it audience, depends. Our audience expects more from us. No, but I'm it ki- depends, I'm Josh. That, that is the same answer I would have given as well, had you been asking me. Well, and it, it depends on a number of different factors. Um, one very important factor is what is the size of the class? As a general proposition, the larger the class, perhaps the less individual um, recovery there might be. And if there's a smaller class, perhaps there's a higher recovery. But again, it depends because it depends on what type of case it is. Even within the BIPA context, is it a consumer case? Is it an employer case? Where does it fall on the spectrum of cases? And where are the defenses? The stronger the defenses, the lower the settlement value. The more egregious the conduct of the defendant, the higher the settlement value. And and speaking of defenses, one of the things that we like to do on our team is to 
put forward all available defenses that are viable, certainly, usually in, in some sort of motion before the court, and many times have a mediation uh, while those motions are pending before the court so that there is pressure on the plaintiff's counsel or and the plaintiffs to come to the table in a reasonable way. And the mediators are very helpful in evaluating those arguments as well because the mediators have seen them before, maybe not in the BIPA context, but they're familiar with the law because often those mediators, at least in the private circumstances, are retired judges who have seen a lot in their day. Yeah. So these mediators, most of whom are retired judges, have that experience when they were on the bench many times with class actions, probably not with BIPA, some perhaps with BIPA, but uh, just the class action experience is helpful. Well, it also gives them credibility because the parties know that they are a former judge, um, as do the attorneys. So if there is some overly creative argument that someone is making, that mediator can very easily say, are you kidding me? And I think it's also fair to say that the mediator's uh, credibility can be useful to both parties if they reach a settlement and then they're seeking court approval of that settlement, the process that you described a few minutes ago. Right, because one of the things that the court is going to look at are were the parties negotiating at an arm's length or is there some sort of collusion going on that the plaintiff's lawyers want to get a big fee so the defense lawyers want to get it settled and everybody's colluding and trying to come up with some reason to get rid of the litigation. That's not an appropriate settlement. So by having an independent mediator involved, that helps the court understand that, yes, this was, in fact, an arm's-length negotiation. So if you could um, now speak to just generally what range of settlements we are seeing based on available information. So I think that the range depends on the type of case. In the employer cases, I would say that we are still looking at around $1,000 per class member. Those cases very much depend on the strength of the case as well as the size of the class. Right. So it can go above or in some cases significantly below that depending on those factors. And then there have been other cases. For example, um, there was one against a company called Verif that related to identity verification monitoring. And that settlement ended up being, I think it was about 200 some dollars. I may be misspeaking. I have to look at it again um, per class member that went out. The Facebook settlement, um, that ended up netting people approximately $400. So it really does vary. Interesting that Facebook settlement was a uh, consumer class action. On those rare occasions when I actually get checks in those cases getting pennies on the dollar, but that's a pretty significant settlement there. It, it, it really is. And it's in contrast to the Six Flags settlement. That was the case where the Illinois Supreme Court took it up and said you don't need to have actual harm, only a statutory violation. That case was decided by the Illinois Supreme Court in 2019, but it subsequently settled. And in that case, there was a multi-year recovery, in part because Six Flags was hit by the effects of COVID. 
But there the recovery was about, I think it was like $26 or, you know, something fairly low. Mm. And as you know, that is actually higher than a lot of class action settlements. Now, one thing some folks in the audience may be wondering is, how was it that a California court approved the Facebook settlement? So that particular case was filed in California. And even though it's an Illinois statute and there were activities going on in Illinois, there were sufficient contacts with the court in California for that court to have jurisdiction and proceed with oversight to the settlement. And I guess that's because Facebook is headquartered in California. Yes. So we've talked about some of the monetary numbers that we're seeing with settlement, but what about non-monetary issues? Uh, Surely there are important factors there that go into settlements. Yes, and I think virtually every BIPA settlement that has occurred, if not everyone, has some component of injunctive relief. Um, In other words, that the company will comply with BIPA or take other actions, or there's non-monetary relief such as monitoring on the dark web for identity theft or something else. It's interesting that you mentioned this identity theft because I want to go back to something I also do cyber work, and I've been in that area longer than BIPA because cyber actually predates BIPA. And I want to go back to our first episode and just say one of the key impetuses for BIPA was the concern by the Illinois legislature that all of these assets that were being sold in bankruptcy proceedings by this company called Pay by Touch could lead to customers' information getting out into the dark web. Everywhere you could see, it was subject to cybersecurity concerns. And cybersecurity breaches were a big part of what led to BIPA and what led to Illinois being the only state in the country that has a private right of action related to biometric information. Which is also why it is just incongruous that if you have, let's say, a finger that's placed on a timekeeping machine and it's turned into a numerical algorithm that cannot be reverse engineered, and you could just put that number out on the web today, and it could, nothing could happen to it. It would just be a number, and you could not use it to reverse it and identify someone, that those cases are being treated the same way as where there's actual identity theft. Right. You nailed it there. And it is incredible to me that we're not aware of a single case where there has been any theft of biometric information and it's being used in an inappropriate way. Now, that doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but after the Rosenbach decision, the plaintiffs don't even have to allege that that is a concern anymore. Well, and I think that practically speaking, companies that actually have any type of biometric information are very careful with it. They have their cyber practices up to date and they don't necessarily retain the data. They retain it as long as is necessary to achieve the goal of getting it to begin with. And then once that is satisfied, they don't keep the data. It's destroyed. And sometimes it's even just instantaneous is the only time that it could be construed as biometric. Just incredible. But yet the statute persists 
And there have been efforts over the years in Illinois to, to roll back the statute, to trim it down some so that it doesn't present such a huge liability risk to Illinois companies and companies, frankly, that operate outside of Illinois that are subject to the statute. But not much has come of that. Right. How has that gone, Josh? It's gone very poorly. I mean, most of these bills have not even made it out of committee. There has been efforts over the years to, again, to trim BIPA down, but none of them, zero, have come to any fruition. And so, as a result, this law, which was passed in 2008, has not been amended in 15 years, and it remains on the books as it was drafted. Do you think any of those proposed amendments could have been better than actually having the statute as it was initially drafted? Oh, yeah. There were some excellent ideas put forward in these amendments to give businesses, for example, the opportunity to cure any alleged violation. And that would have gone a long way, I think, to both protecting employees and consumers, but at the same time being fair to businesses. That didn't happen, though. That amendment did not pass. And isn't it typical to have cure provisions in a lot of different types of statutes? Oh, yeah. I mean, we see cure provisions in numerous statutes, and not just here in Illinois, but in other states as well. But it just didn't work. And it just shows, I think, how once a statute gets on the books that allegedly relates to protecting consumer privacy or employee privacy or just an individual's privacy. It's very hard to roll that back because who wants to be the politician that says that they are trying to take away individuals' right to privacy? You make an excellent point. And I think that's one of the reasons we have not seen an amendment. Yeah. I think it's also interesting to discuss 15 years later, why there are no other BIPA statutes in other states. You would think that there would be. Are other states just not aware of it? Well, other states are definitely aware of it. And legislation has been introduced in a wide variety of states, some that mimics BIPA almost to the letter. But so far, none of those have passed. Now, the states of Texas and Washington have statutes that protect biometric information that are enforced by the attorneys general. But so far, the other states have not gotten on the BIPA bandwagon, although there have been several where the same type of legislation has been introduced more than once. It's interesting. There have been attempts in these states and it just hasn't gotten through. So there must be some sort of business lobby against these statutes. Well, and I think so. And I'm not really surprised by that because I think that the business lobbies see what's happening in Illinois, which a lot of folks look at as not particularly business friendly to start with. And then they see this statute and they see thousands of class actions and businesses being driven to the brink of bankruptcy, insurance litigation, and really just a bit of a disaster that is in Illinois with BIPA. And I think other states look at that and think, well, gosh, like, what is this really a good idea and what's necessary to protect our consumers? And when you have a state like Illinois where you're not seeing actual harm, it's a little bit difficult to justify that. Yeah, it is. And I can tell you that the businesses we represent, they're not just big corporations. Sometimes they are. 
Sometimes they're mid-sized businesses, but many times they're small mom-and-pop restaurants or hospitality vendors or the like. And this is real money to them. Going into these settlement conferences and having to pony up money, it's real money. It affects their bottom line. It affects their ability to hire and retain employees, and in some cases, even stay in business. And it is just uh, really sad to see how the statute... um, has impacted these companies. I completely agree. Thank you, Josh, for that insight. We will look forward to coming back for our next episode of the BIPA Radar and further discussion on insurance aspects and risk transfer. I think we will have a lot to talk about in future episodes and always nice being with you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you.